The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for use as a diagnosis or treatment of a health problem or as a substitute for consulting a licensed medical professional. Any information obtained by participating as a podcast listener is not intended to and should not be considered to constitute medical advice. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the authors or guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of UTMB. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome back. We're going to have another critical discussion with Sandra Heider. She has her MBA, her MS. She's an acute care adult nurse practitioner at the Cardiovascular Intensive Care Unit at Memorial Hermann. She's certified as a critical care nurse, a cardiovascular nurse, and a progressive care nurse. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you for coming on again. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so exciting, and I feel honored to be here. We are honored to have you, and we're honored to have you as a clinical instructor, so we're excited for our students that are going to get to learn more about cardiovascular. And today we're going to share some of that with everyone in the class. And so I wanted to start by uh, discussing coronary artery bypass grafts with you today. And so can you explain what a coronary artery bypass graft is or a cabbage as we sometimes refer to them? Sure. So um, if a patient is um, taken for a heart cath and they shoot the contrast in and they see that their coronary arteries are occluded and there's no way to open them up with a stent, which is known as a PCI, uh, percutaneous intervention with the stent placement, um, then they're referred to our center for um, a coronary bypass evaluation. So what we have to do is bypass that blocked part of the artery with either a vein graft from their leg, a saphenous vein graft is the one that we usually use, or they can actually use their own arteries from the left side or the right side, which are known as the lima or the rima. It stands for left internal mammary artery or the right internal mammary artery. And that actually comes off the subclavian artery, which is that, that big old artery that feeds your arm. You just bring those down and you bypass the areas that are included in the heart. So when we say bypass coronary artery bypass, that's exactly what it means. You bypass those coronary arteries that are occluded, and you either use a graft from their own arteries or you use grafts from their veins. So this is the way that the patient is able to get good blood flow or perfusion to that area of the heart, um, having bypassed those big blockages that we're seeing on the heart cath. Okay. And so when these patients come out of, of OR, you know, This is generally something we, you know, it's open heart surgery, so we consider this to be a pretty big surgery. And so, you know, usually we consider a patient that's just immediately post-op to be hemodynamically unstable. And and what about this makes them, like, why is a cabbage patient hemodynamically unstable? Well, we also have to think about how this procedure is done. So usually the patient has been put on what we call on pump. So this is a um, bypass pump, so where they are still being perfused, but the heart is stopped. So they'll have a cannula um, into their artery and then one into their venous system so they can bypass the heart but still be perfusing the rest of the body. When this is done, the heart, like I said, is completely stopped and then has to be restarted once they get off pump. Um, and kind of being woken up to say, hey, go on ahead and wake up. It's time for you to work. Now, we can relate this to us. Let's all pretend that we're the heart. If you've been out, you got like, I don't know if any of you have all, any of you have ever taken like Benadryl or something because you had really, really bad 
allergies and you wake up the next morning and you're like so groggy still, Mm -hmm. that's essentially what happens with your heart. So you were asleep, you tell your heart, wake up, wake up, and it's still kind of groggy, needs help to to come back and start working like it was before. Um, That's essentially what your heart's doing. So when you come out of surgery, you're not maybe getting the best blood pressure, maybe not squeezing as hard as you, you would because you're, you know, you're still trying to wake up. So when these patients come on and we see that they're hemodynamically unstable, we kind of have to think, okay, maybe we need to tank them up, give them a little bit more volume, see if we can get that blood pressure up that way. Let's make sure they're not bleeding, they're not mm-hmm. oozing out from the chest tubes that they'll have. Maybe they just need a little bit more blood um, and we can give it to them that way. Now, hemodynamic instability can also be seen on the opposite side. Maybe they come out and their blood pressure is way too high. Maybe they're mm-hmm. 160, 170. Well, that's because um, they're probably super cold still. We keep them pretty cold in the OR. Mm -hmm. They're super cold and they're clamped down. If we remember cold, cold actually makes your blood pressure go up because we have vasoconstriction. That happens Mm -hmm. when you're cold. And when you're hot, you have a lot of vasodilation. So then your blood pressure is going to be on the lower end if you're in in that hot area, if you would. Um, so we have to look at both sides. So hemodynamic instability from low blood pressure, you need to give maybe some volume, maybe some blood, or maybe the heart's not quite functioning very well yet or strongly yet, so you maybe need to augment them with some medication that can help. Or if they're super high, unstable in that standpoint, so maybe you have to either warm them up to get that blood pressure mm-hmm. to come down, or maybe they're hurting, maybe pain, they're starting mm-hmm. to wake up, maybe you need to give them some pain medicine, or um, maybe they're super high because you have all the combination of those factors together. So that's something you ha- kind of have to look at and be able to treat the instability, either hyper or hypotension. Okay. And you mentioned we cooled patients down in the OR. Why is it that, what's the rationale for doing that? And how does that impact your care when they come out of the OR? Um, well, they cool, I'm not an anesthesiologist, but I know <laughs> that they do um, cool them down back there. What also helps save brain function So if we go back to think about the new ACLS guidelines where you have return of spontaneous circulation, you're supposed to induce um, therapeutic hypothermia if the patient doesn't come back like immediately neurologically intact because the studies have shown that cooling them down is able to help decrease the uh, metabolic demand Mm -hmm. um, in the system and help save some of that brain function. And the same can be said for cooling the patient in the OR. Um, cooling them down, um, making sure that you perfuse that brain, you're able to still save some of that brain function, um, and then um, making sure that whenever they wake up that you're, you're trying to warm them up from that standpoint. And how does their cool body temperature impact their ability to um, coagulate form clots? Oh, gosh, good question. Yes, this is something we always have to remember. So you're going to be coagulopathic, so you'll be, you'll be more oozy when you're, when you're cold. Um, so you have to make sure that you're watching your numbers, looking at those coagulation factors, and, and replacing what you need to. Um, we use something called a TEG um, in, in the OR, which I won't get into. That's a whole podcast in itself, but it's a it's a lab um, it's lab work that we do that's able to kind of tell us on the on the early end what type of coagulation or coagulopathy issues they're having, and we'll replace them with SSP or cryoprecipitate or even some platelets to help get them out of that coagulation factor or coagulation state. Okay. And what are some things we as nurses can do to help warm up our patients when they come out of OR? 
Uh, my favorite is the bear hugger. I remember when these big silver bear huggers, uh, the blankets came out. Um, I was one of the first ones to kind of try to play in it and wrap myself up in one. Those are always pretty <laughs> awesome. So usually when the nurses hear that the uh, patient is going to come out, they already have ordered the bear hugger and get the, the blanket in there. Um, I'm sorry, the, yes, the cooling, the warming blanket in there. Yeah. And then, um, of course, is making sure that the patient has their gown on. Um, I don't know if most people realize this, but when patients in, there, in, in the OR, they're essentially naked. They don't have any clothes on. So let's get the clothes on. Let's get them their gowns on. Let's make sure that they have extra blankets on. And um, some facilities I've heard use warm uh, fluids. We don't have warm fluids. We have them at room temperature. But if someone really, really needed to be warmed up, there's warm fluids that you can use um, to help get them nice and warm. That sounds like the rich hospitals. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when you're taking care of a patient and they, they've had a cabbage, you know, it's important to think about how valuable our assessment is at this time. And so when you're assessing these patients, what things, you know, if the nurse is at the bedside, what assessment findings would you as a provider want to be notified of? What things are you going to be concerned about? Um, well, first and foremost, we always look at our ABCs, regardless of what's going on with the patient. Always look at your ABCs. And if you start with that, you can kind of work yourself down from there. Um, most of these patients will, well, all of the patients will come out with the ventilator. So mm -hmm. the A, airway, that one is, is taken care of. Make sure that that airway is secure, though. What if moving them, returning them from the OR stretcher to the bed dislodged the ET tube? So we have to take a look at that. And this is where the big assessment um, kind of handoff goes off to when you're getting report from the OR nurse. Um, mm -hmm. As the nurse, you're like, okay, what size tube is that? Where was it taped at the lip? Um, is the chest x-ray coming so we can confirm placement and look and see if the patient's um, O2 sat and, and all that looks good. So that's your airway, making sure that that's okay. Breathing, are they breathing? Do you see that they have equal um, chest rise? What if in the movement you push that tube in further and now they're right stem, right stem intubated and you only have one side um, being um, ventilated and the other side isn't. So here's your auscultation, your visualization of that chest rising, and of course your O2 sats um, yet again. Um, and then you go to your circulation. What's your blood pressure looking like? Is the patient stable from that standpoint? Um, and then you go into your, your other your other assessments. Neurologically, are they starting to wake up now? Mm -hmm. If it's been, let's say it's been um, an hour, or now we're going into two hours. Anesthesia told us that the last medicine they received, that the last um, paralytic they received has been over an hour to two hours, then your patients should start waking up. And if they're not waking up, then I need to be, I, I need to know, because what if they suffered some type of um, stroke event or, mm -hmm. or some type of uh, neurologic event in the in the OR? That's something that we have to be able to assess. You're going to look at your chest tubes. Are they dumping? Mm -hmm. um, are they are they clotting up? Maybe they were dumping and very much when they first came out and now they like completely stopped, but our blood pressure is looking bad and our CVC is starting to rise and like, oh my goodness, what happens if those chest tubes get, get clotted off? Well, now we're maybe looking into some cardiac tamponade type of picture and we need to declot those chest tubes to get that out. So these are all things that we need to look at. And also um, those kidneys we have to go back to the kidneys and see mm -hmm. if our urine output is picking up. Um, that's going to give us a good indication of the patient's getting good uh, perfusion all across the body. 
All right. Yeah, no, I've definitely seen patients, you know, they'll start to wake up and somebody will exclaim, they move all their extremities and it's kind of that they're making that connection. Okay, you know, we don't think they've had a stroke because they're moving everything. And so even though we don't want to lose the airway, they're looking at the bright side. So, So a lot of these cabbage patients, most of them are coming out with chest tubes, pulmonary artery catheters. You know, what... When you're thinking, if you're a, a nurse and you're assessing these things, again, what assessment findings with a pulmonary artery catheter or a chest tube is going to be something? And I know you mentioned the dumping with the, if they're dumping blood or drainage with the chest tube, but what things would you want to know about as a provider? Um, well, as a well, let's start first as a nurse. Okay. So you're the nurse and you're looking at your chest tubes. So you want to make sure that they're placed to suction. Um, that is usually that's the standard. You want to make sure we suck this blood out that's coming out. We want to make sure that it's not getting clotted off because that's going to affect our heart function. So I want to make sure that my chest tubes are to suction, to wall suction. And if we go back to remember some of the last lab stuff that we worked on, we can tell that the chest tube is to suction because we see that orange little. Uh, I don't know the full terminology for it. Cause the orange little ball, the orange little ball is out. Yeah. That lets us know. Yes. So that lets us know that our chest tubes are to suction. So we can check that box off um, and say, okay, yes, it is to suction. Let me make sure that that's that's what's going on with the patient. Make sure that you look at your dressings. Um, OR nurses love to use a bunch of tape. I thank them for that because our chest tubes shouldn't be dislodged. But you want to make sure everything up on your dressing area looks good. So those are some assessments that you want to take a look at just from an assessment standpoint. And then for your PA catheter, you also want to have gotten a report from the anesthesia team um, at where they placed their PA catheter. Was it at 50? Was it at 52? What, where was this PA catheter when they were in the OR and getting their numbers from? Because if you patient comes out and it's, it's very short, it's, it's in further or it's pulled out further, mm-hmm. then you're going to start having some different numbers. So you won't be able to really uh, rely on that um, information that the PA catheter gives you um, to be able to relate to the provider. Um, chest x-ray comes in um, comes into play at this point for both chest tubes and for the PA catheter. Um, our nurses, our critical care nurses, um, have skilled eyes now that they're able to see, okay, my PA catheter looks good on x-ray. Let me look at my waveforms to make mm-hmm. sure my waveforms look like they're appropriate. Um, and now I can believe those numbers. Mm-hmm. So, what I would want to be notified of is, and usually when, when we have a post-op come out like this in the x-rays, then we look at it together, the providers and the nurses. So we can all agree and see, okay, yes, we have good placement of the catheter. Yes, we can believe. Look at our waveform. That's great. Okay, we can believe these numbers. So then at that point, you can tell me, hey, my cardiac index is dropping. Um, my CVP is dropping. Mm-hmm. And I need to be able to, to know how to, how to react to the patient based on those numbers that the nurses telling me and if she's telling me okay my blood pressure is low cvp is low and i have uh, within the last 30 minutes the chest tube's already dumped 200 mm-hmm. then i can kind of start saying okay maybe this patient needs some some products either blood products directly with prbc or maybe they're so oozy they need some yellow like ffp or platelets or something like that so the nurses report to me is very very important okay and that that information i mean i think nurses sometimes it's easy to not think about this, but really nurses, especially in the ICU, are the eyes and the ears that are always there. And so oh, absolutely, it is so important to be paying attention to how much, you know, and you'll see this when, 
when you get a cabbage out and you're at the bedside, you really need to be checking how much blood every time you're in the room or like every five minutes, you know, does it look, where is this at? Because that's so important. We're, you know, running numbers often because we want to make sure we're catching anything before it becomes a bigger problem. And so what are some of the the complications that you see are, you know, obviously there are some that are frequent that maybe aren't as life-threatening, and then there are some that are more life-threatening. And so what are some of the things you see more commonly that are complications or things that we can reverse, especially if we act quickly? And then what are some of the things where we're trying to avoid them because they're life-threatening? Um, so the frequent things that we see is uh, maybe low blood pressure, low cardiac output. Um, because the patient is vasoconstricted because they're cold in the OR, they don't tend to give as much volume um, back there because the blood pressure looks good, quote-unquote mm-hmm. good to them. So they won't receive so much volume. So when they come out, we can we can say, okay, the patient might be a little dry. Let's give them some volume and see how they do to, to fix this low blood pressure, which is, again, one of the frequent things that we see. And we can fix that. They tank them up a little bit, and then um, they end up doing much better. Um, another frequent problem that you would see is maybe not being able to wean them off of the ventilator so quickly because they're still pretty sleepy. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you have to kind of think about, okay, do I want to – I do want to wake up the patient, but I also have to be mindful of the pain that they might be in. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to balance what medications you give to to help with their pain to make sure you don't sedate them um, very much either because you do want to get that ventilator out. So what we use, uh, we use a, a, a multimodal effect uh, or a regimen rather with the uh, with pain medicine, we'll use IV Tylenol to help out. Um, we'll also use um, in the in the OR, the anesthesiologist will try to block the sternum to help decrease the pain and be able to have the patient breathe a little bit better. Okay. Um, so trying to get them off and waking them up and, and get them off the ventilator um, is sometimes one of the frequent challenges. You'll see that they're acidotic because they've been retaining CO2 mm-hmm. from um, you know being back there. So we'll have to to mess with the ventilator to kind of get that um, corrected. And then another frequent problem that we can see is the um, patient's heart rate. You have to really have to take a look and see at that heart rate because I don't know if many people realize this, but once you start having kind of edema and everything from from the procedure kick in, then you can maybe knock out your SA node and mm-hmm. the patient ends up, you know, not having a, a perfect heart rate. They're going to a junctional rhythm or we've even had sometimes patients that lose their um, their entire intrinsic rhythm and you have to pace them mm-hmm. coming out. So that's something that you really need to look at as well with the heart rate. And let me think of another frequent problem. Oh, well, I guess you can say with the hemodynamics, um, the same thing, low urine output, mm-hmm. then you'll start looking, okay, my, low, my urine output's dropping, so let me go ahead and maybe give them some more volume. That's what they need to be able to get better perfusion to those kidneys. And you mentioned mm-hmm. the the ventilator and trying to wean them. And with the cabbage patients, what are your goals for getting them extubated? How quickly after they come out of OR are we trying to extubate them? Um, so we follow guidelines that, that the Society for Thoracic Surgery has set for extubation. And it's usually within six hours that we're trying to get them extubated, but definitely within 24 without getting um, kind of dings, if you would, against you for having prolonged ventilator times because... 
Ideally, the Society of Thoracic Surgery says if you've done a, a good job doing your bypass grafts, then this patient should be able to wake up. Although they may, they don't have to be completely hemodynamically stable, you could do on a little bit of vasopressors, just a little bit of vasopressors to get them off of there. The goal is to get them extubated because you didn't operate on their lungs, you operated on their heart, mm-hmm. so their lungs should be okay and be able to, to get off this ventilator with anywhere between six hours to 24 hours. Okay. And what are some of the more serious problems that you see with somebody that's had a, a cabbage? Um, serious problems would be maybe um, because, the, say, let, let's go back to our cold scenario mm-hmm. where the patient's cold and their blood pressure is super high. Um, they could be so high that they can they can bust open one of their new grafts. Um, we've seen that happen before where the patient now doesn't have a good uh, perfusion to that part that we were supposed to bypass, and now the heart's not functioning well. We also have a, a extreme bleeding that we see coming from the chest tube. We just see blood pouring out of the chest tube, and our EKG, we're, now we're starting to have some EKG changes because that part that was supposed to be perfused is essentially becoming ischemic. They're not having mm-hmm. perfusion there. So we'll have those EKG changes. We'll have the blood, the hemodynamic changes, and then we'll also have the, the bleeding from the chest tubes, and those are emergent situations where we have to be right right there, right away. We've had to open the chest up right there at the bedside, or sometimes the patient's able to tolerate being rolled down to the OR um, to be able to take be taken care of from, from that standpoint. So those are some of the emergent things we see. Um, we've also seen... Um, let me see what other emergency. Oh, the the strokes. They haven't woken yeah. up and they're like, oh my gosh, now the patient strokes. So what are we going to do? How are we going to fix this? Um, you know, if we think back to our neuro lectures, there's two options to be able to, to fix the stroke. If it's ischemic, you either give them TPA to bust that clot open, or maybe they can go down for the, for the surgery where they go in and pull the clot out of the brain. Now, a post, fresh post-op patient is not going to be the best candidate to give them TPA because they're going to end up bleeding out everywhere. So now we really have to rack our brains. Okay, what do we want to do? Is it risk versus benefits? Do we let know that the patient may maybe have had a stroke and kind of watch and see how they recover? Or do we risk them going back to another procedure to get this out and um, help save their neurologic status from there? So. Lots of thinking, conversations with the family. Um, I think it's this is where um, nurses are trained. If the patient's coming in electively, maybe they were already here um, in the hospital waiting for a cabbage. This is where the whole, do you have advanced directives? Um, do you have someone that can mm-hmm. speak for you? Goes into play because they really need to make sure somebody can speak for them and know their wishes because if you're in this type of situation, um, do you want to have a stroke and not be able to function on your own and maybe be dependent on the ventilator or, um, you know, dependent on, on being cared for for the rest of your life? Is that something that you want? Or if something like that happens, does the patient feel, okay, hey, you know what, if that happens, you know, it's just my time, let me go. I'm okay. I don't want to have to, you know, a bunch of life-saving stuff to, to bring me back. Um, just let me go. So I think that that's a very important point to also discuss. Oh, and that's such surgery. a hard you know, those are hard conversations. They are difficult things. And I think that oftentimes families don't have this discussion amongst themselves. And my experience has been some people don't want to be the person responsible to say, no, they wouldn't. They don't want to be responsible for the decision because they don't want to make the wrong decision. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
And that's why it's so important that the patients and anyone out there that's listening right now, you can be 20 years old. You mm-hmm. need to let someone know what your decisions would be. Mm-hmm. Um, have we seen patients come in critically that are 18, 19, 20 years old? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And do you, going into nursing, knowing what nursing would be in a full nursing home or in a long-term care facility, patients end up being um, sometimes, sadly, they, they end up being kind of abandoned by their family. They're cared for by these healthcare providers. And now they have pressure sores. They have mm-hmm. a peg tube. They have a trach. They can't do anything for themselves. They're just sitting there kind of dependent on everyone else. And sometimes they're neurologically intact and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're um, essentially just just there. It just is, it's a body that's there. So that's something that, that you would want, even at 20 years old, that's something that you would want for the rest of your life. So those are conversations that I feel like everyone, regardless of age, needs to have with their family. I agree. I agree. So one of the things, this is back to cabbages, but one of the things that I think is always shocking for families and this goes back to, again, some education, is how quickly we move from them being unstable to getting them up, moving around. And so what education do you think is really important that we provide as nurses to help get our patients moving, to help prepare the family, help prepare them um, to be successful? Oh, absolutely. That's a very good point to bring up because, yes, um, and, you know, sometimes the only information that patients have on on medicine is what they see on TV. So Mm -hmm. you see a patient that's super sick on TV and, oh, my goodness, how dare you? My patient just, my husband just had bypass surgery. You want him to get out of bed? Are you you serious? (laughs) No, he's still critical. No, but, you know, it's very important for them to know. And um, going back to the elective uh, procedures that we have, they do get seen in the clinic and they do get provided this information. Hey, you know, you're going to come out, you're going to be on a ventilator for X amount of hours. We're going to try to get you off the ventilator. We'll give you pain medicine to make you comfortable. Mm -hmm. But please know that we will be getting you out of bed and trying to get you mobilized as soon as possible because studies have shown mobilizing you, getting you out of bed, helps decrease any of these post-operative complications like um, pneumonia or having a post-op ileus or, um, you know, having a muscle DVT. deconditioning. So mm-hmm. these are, um, yeah, these are definitely things that, that you should be prepared for. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we can do as much teaching as we want beforehand, but as soon as uh, the wife or the husband come in and see their loved one on the ventilator and, you know, maybe awake and kind of coughing and wanting to get off the ventilator, we have to just be nurses right there at the bedside, remind them, hey, look, he's going to cough. Um, you know, it, you imagine yourself trying to breathe through a straw. It's going to be a little difficult right now. Mm-hmm. If you feel like you can't handle it, it's okay to wait in the waiting room, but this is going to be the hardest time for them. But we want to make sure when we do get the tube out that we do it safely because we don't want to have to put it back in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you say things like that to them, they'll be a little bit calmer and they will take that step to, to kind of step and wait out in the waiting room. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they won't. So you just have to, you know, understand that they may be anxious and just reassure them and remind them again that this is the process to be able to get this out. Now, that's for extubation. For getting them out of bed, you do need to let them know again, hey, we want to make sure we decrease these post-op complications. We're going to be here to help him. He's still connected to the monitors. And I keep using him, but, you know, there's, of course, females that also have this this type of surgery. So, you know, we really want to get him out of bed. We want to get him into the chair. He's still going to be on the monitors. We're still watching everything. Mm -hmm. Nothing's changed in terms of monitoring him. We can even see our chest tube output and our urine output, but we really need him out of the bed to the chair to decrease some 
of these complications that the studies have shown can happen. So if you just talk to them, talk them through every every process that you're doing, I feel like it, the more information you give them kind of a step-by-step, the less anxious that family and the patient themselves will be, and um, they'll be w- more willing to, to participate or follow your lead. Let's say you're going to get your patient out of bed and you offer them pain medication and they say, I don't need that right now. What What's your recommendation for that nurse to say to that patient or what patient education do you recommend at that point? Sure. So you can tell them, yeah, you, you're not hurting right now, but just imagine trying to get up. And I would really like to make sure that your pain is, is addressed beforehand because mm-hmm. once you start hurting, I mean, you take a tablet, it can take up to an hour for that pain medicine to kick in. And I really wouldn't want you to have to wait that long to have a medication take effect for you. Let's be proactive and kind of address the pain beforehand. And that way, if it does kick in when you're in the chair, you already have some um, relief from it once you get into that chair. One of the things that I always find surprising when I have cabbage patients or when I had them, I guess now, but um, they w- they will sometimes complain. I would always expect it to be their incisional pain that was really bad. And a lot of times I would find that they would say it's the pain around the chest tube is what's really painful. And so that's something where, you know, it's so important that we talk about deep breathing and IS and getting them moving. And so that's something that goes in when we get them out of bed too. They'll sometimes say, my chest doesn't hurt that bad, but I don't know if this is your experience, but I've had a lot of complaints about the chest tube. Yes, that's a very good point to bring up too. And also like um, upper back shoulder pain, maybe type of scapula pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if we remember um, that some of the chest tubes go into the pleural space and in the pleural space, it's kind of pointed upwards. And it can hit on those nerve endings that are um, kind of close to your shoulder blades. Um, so the patients can feel that too. So um, I also, you know, of course, once they're more awake, I, I try to be um, very informative. I'll show them the chest x-ray and tell them, hey, look, look at where this chest tube, the tip of this chest tube is. Is that kind of where you're feeling your pain? It's like, oh, yeah, that is. That is exactly where I'm like, okay, you know, that's that's your chest tube. And I can't move that. I can't remove it. But let's go ahead and give you some different pain medicine, maybe like gabapentin that can help with the nerve pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll help relieve some of that to be able to um, get you to cough and deep breathe like you need to. And I also remind them, hey, look, as, long, as, as soon as these chest tube outputs have decreased enough, we're going to get these tubes out and you'll feel so much better. And that is definitely something that I see. So you mentioned gabapentin and some, you know, some getting good pain regimen. In addition to making sure pain management is covered, are there other medications that are standards or things that that nurses should expect to see with their cabbages and potentially ask about if they're not ordered on their patients? Oh, absolutely. So Coming out post-op, we kind of mentioned that they can be on vasopressors. Uh, what usually is used is epinephrine um, to help with um, the heart rate and squeezing and all that jazz. And then sometimes you also see them on levofed to help um, bring that blood pressure up as well. Um, but in the um, post-op days, by post-op day one, um, in terms of medications for um, specific core measure meds that the Society of Thoracic Surgery has has uh, and the American College of Cardiology has recommended for these post-op patients is having aspirin on board. Mm-hmm. Aspirin, as we know, is an antiplatelet, so we don't want any of those new bypass grafts getting full with a bunch of platelets that can cause them to become occluded. We also use Plavix, which is another antiplatelet that's a bit stronger than aspirin mm-hmm. in the combination 
combination of the two has shown to really help decrease the um, bypasses from becoming occluded. Um, we also use beta blockers, metoprolol, um, specifically to help with the um, lowering of the heart rate. Of course, we know that it, it can help lower blood pressure just a little bit, um, uh, but mainly focusing on the heart rate, uh, bring that heart rate down so that they can have the, the squeeze that they need to get that output out, the cardiac output out. And that's only, of course, if their blood pressure can handle. Also, mm -hmm. the um, regulation is for them to have a cholesterol um, medication to help prevent the buildup of cholesterol. So we usually use the sorbostatin um, or, any, or any statin that, that um, the cardiology team would recommend to help decrease any of that plaque buildup and um, make sure that the patient doesn't end up having the need for another bypass surgery down mm -hmm. the line. Um, so aspirin, Plavix, statin, beta blocker. And then we also have to think about the heart function of the patient. If the patient was um, in the OR and the anesthesia was able to tell you what that um, that EF was, that ejection fraction was, mm -hmm. and if it was low, which we consider low anything less than 40%, that's kind of considered, that is considered congestive heart failure, then we start thinking about, okay, do they need an ACE? or an ARB, which has shown to help with these um, heart failure patients with the remodeling of the heart and all that. Um, do they need to be on that? And then do they also need to be on a diuretic to help get some of this fluid off of them if they're in heart failure? Those are our core measure meds, and that's a very good point to bring up because nurses are um, responsible for double-checking this when, before the patient goes home, is that mm -hmm. the provider has given them the core measure medications that they're required to have. Yeah, and I think that's something where, you know, you just have to remember these are important things. We're all part of a team, and it's something where we've got to play a big part. And so I have one last question for you. Um, another thing that I think just takes such a team approach is the incentive spirometer and coughing and deep breathing. And so I'm just curious, what are the, the pointers that you tell your patients how to use it? Why is it so important? Because I think sometimes it's good for new nurses to kind of get taglines for some of these things that are, are so instrumental to success for our patients. Sure. So you want to talk to them about the incentive spirometer in terms of what, what I do. Like I said, I take the x-ray in there and I kind of show them what their x-ray looks like. And I'm like, you see that haziness down there that kind of looks like cotton candy? Then that can be a little fluid buildup. And then you have this like white stuff down here. This is um, um, atelectasis, which is collapse of your lower, lower lungs. So what we want to do is open those lungs up. And this machine here, show them the incentive spirometer, is going to really help open up those lungs. Because if that stays down there with both the fluid and the collapsed lungs, you can end up having pneumonia. And you don't want to buy yourself another week in the hospital for pneumonia. And usually when I say that, they're like, oh, no, I, sure, I certainly don't. <laughs> and I do tell them, I do remind them, I'm like, hey, you know, it might hurt because when you, when you, you know, show them how to use the incentive spirometer. When you right. suck on this thing and it, it opens up your lung space, and the first reaction is going to be for you to cough. And we do want you to cough. We want you to get all that phlegm and that mm -hmm. yucky stuff out, but I know it hurts. So I also teach them how to splint. Mm -hmm. to make sure that their um, their incisional pain is not um, much worse than what it could be. I teach them how to split and also remind them, hey, before you start doing your breathing exercises, go ahead and have the nurse um, bring you some pain medicine mm -hmm. because we want to make sure that you cough and deep breathe and make sure that those lungs are open up. But I don't want you hurting so bad to where you can't even do these exercises and then we, we take a step back. 
Um, and then also remind them, you know, hey, look, you have oxygen on right now, which they usually do come in out of BOR. Like, look, you have oxygen on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't mean you need it forever, but right now your lungs are needing a little bit of help. So let's let's go ahead and use this infinite barometer, get you off this oxygen and get you back to, to your normal. And that kind of helps them as well, kind of reminding them, hey, you want to go back to your normal. Yeah. You want to make sure you don't buy yourself extra time here in the hospital. And we want to make sure we get all this junk out of your lungs. That's so true. Well, I want to thank you for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I think this is, it's great to hear from people who are in practice right now and what they're doing. And so I really appreciate your time, Sandra. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited for our future nurses. Thank you. Yes. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.